Well, hey, clan. It's good to see you. And for anybody transcribing, that was clan with a C. I just think I should go ahead and put that out there. You know, not a K, but definitely a C. So anyway, now that we've clarified that very important detail, I'll go ahead and say, obviously, I moved, which means that in the last week, we have transported about 50 years away from those curtains. So welcome to that, you know, massive improvement um, it, you know, in that period of time. So yeah, it's been a very, very busy week for me. And yes, I'm doing it for my couch. This, this is not a permanent thing, but it is a temporary thing because I'm in the middle of moving. And you know, yet despite the fact that I'm doing it for my couch, it's still a massive improvement because we're like in the present now, which is amazing. Okay, moving on though. I want to start by talking to you um, about what the military is doing. And no, I don't mean in Ukraine. What I mean is what they're doing here and how they're preparing us all for you know military red readiness how they kind of getting that going and so on yeah they've, they've got they've got great plans i have to show you a screenshot direct from their website because i don't think you'd believe me if i simply read off the title so here we go Revised Army Regulation and Grooming Standards Support Diversity Equity and Inclusion and People First Priority yeah they're serious. This is their priority now. Um, this is what they're working on. Something tells me that like the Russian military have other things going on. You know, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, maybe, but I'm just going to take a wild guess and say the Russian military, the Ukrainian military, the Chinese military, none of them are worried about diversity, equity, and inclusion and people first priorities. You know. It, Maybe that's just me being crazy. And you know, as you get down and you read this document that the the United States military, actually, the United States Army rather, actually put on their um, on their website, you start to read and they, they go like they have a new initiative which involves clarifying the policy on breastfeeding or pumping in uniform. Now I'm not kidding. So you like you look at that title and you're like, there must be something else going on. But no. That's what they're doing. That they're figuring out how these women who are on the front lines and shouldn't be should, you know, be dealing with the fact that they are still lactating. That's that's what we're doing. So aren't you guys like really excited, you know, about getting into a new war now because we're so ready for this? Yeah, me too. Me too. Feeling really confident there. And apparently there are other approved revisions which include the optional wearing of earrings now, though not on the front lines, thankfully, um, but also lipstick and nail colors for women so they can do their nail polish. Not joking, actually, this is in the document. And also clear um, nail polish for men. See, this was a really important distinction. I don't know about you, but I was thinking, like, what do we need to do to get our military ready and sort of up to par so that it can take on a massive, you know, superpower of the modern age, if need be? You know, I'm not even talking Russia necessarily. You know, China is, is a very real threat uh, to the United States and has values directly in opposition and so on. Um, so personally, if we were to go to war on the basis of values, I'd much prefer to, you know, fight with Russia, with China in that regard, you know, value for value. But... We're worried about whether or not they can wear lipstick. That's that's literally where we are. And also whether they can have highlights in their hair. The answer is yes. I know you're wondering. Uh, as, long, as long as it's not neon, you know. But you can you can have highlights. And so all the new all the women and the gay men will now be signing up because that's what we were lacking in our military, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Of course it was. That's exactly what we were lacking. And in addition, this is my favorite part. I think 
the revised regulation will no longer contain potentially offensive language to describe several hairstyles, like mohawk and dreadlock. No, I'm not kidding. They're changing their manuals as to what is acceptable um, in order to uh, say, you know what, mohawks, mohawk just sounds offensive because, you know, that's like an Indian. Sorry, can't say that either. I mean a Native American. <laughs> this is where we are. This is the military. This isn't, you know, some idiotic uh, branch of a corporation that's trying to appease NASDAQ and its new diversity hiring crap. This is actually the United States military, and they're worried about whether or not Mohawk is offensive and whether or not you can have nail polish and what color it ought to be, depending on whether you're a guy or a girl. And let's be honest, the, the, the lines between guys and girls are really confused right now for people who are in charge of our military, considering that they now allow, you know, transgender surgeries and that kind of thing to happen through the military. So, yeah, that, that, sound, that sounds exciting. Um, and all this happens, is happening, while we have this kind of saga going on uh, between Russia and Ukraine. We do know, apparently, that Russia did, in fact, attack Ukraine, right? And you also have the uh, Ukrainian a uh, president who sent out a tweet in the early hours of this morning, that is Thursday morning for people who are watching this later on, asking non-military members to pick up arms and help and that he'd basically give them weapons should they want them or be willing to use them. Um, the Biden administration have been bizarrely quiet during this period because you would think, like, if this was... If this was uh, like the Trump administration, you know that he'd be constantly putting out different notices and so on. Um, but that is not what's been happening. The, the administration has been exceedingly quiet. Now, the thing is, one thing that bothers me about this whole thing, though, is that the mainstream media and the Biden administration, um, they hate Russia, but for all of the wrong reasons. Like, why do they, they hate Russia, really? I mean, take the Ukraine part out of it. They've hated Russia for some time. They tried to pin the fact that Trump won on Russia, right? Because that was, that was their idea of the bogeyman. It wasn't China. Uh, it wasn't North Korea. It was, it was Russia that they had the biggest issue with. Well, Russia is, a, is an Orthodox Christian place. It's led by a man. And I don't mean just literally. I mean, you know, he's actually a masculine man which is something that our entire modern culture sort of rejects. It's certainly something the mainstream media rejects. It's something that the modern left sees as, as a bad thing. Also in Russia, you have what an opposition to mass immigration, an opposition to multiculturalism, which comes with mass immigration, of course. Um, there's the fact that in Russia they're opposed to, uh, how do I put this, I guess LGBT indoctrination and the sort of uh, flagrant use of that kind of stuff, but especially in relation to kids, child propaganda, all of that. Putin does reject wokeism, you're correct, the person in the chat who just said that. Yeah, and so you've got all these different reasons why the modern left is in stark opposition with Russia. And so for that reason, we have very few um, sources of good information on this topic. We do, and it's like, um, when it comes to things that happen here in the U.S. and here in Canada, we do often get information, um, ironically enough, through social media, and we find out what's actually happening on the ground, and people like me can report on that with some degree of, of certainty in what's going on, you know, due to a plethora of different people speaking. But in a case like this, I don't feel that same degree of confidence. I, I don't, because our sources of information are so limited and so biased, and I want to show you, like, like, look at this. This is what well, somebody else put together, but they're all actually real. And you can see the people who are 
lining up saying you know that they're they're on the side of ukraine they hate russia russia's bad and so on and, and to them it's just you know putin is here we go tragic you know is barbaric and and so on and it's like when you've got all these people lined up and that's you know i don't want to present the idea that if these people ever support or ever are opposed to somebody um that that person is automatically good because that's not the case and that's not what i'm presenting but i do think that there's a vested interest amongst leftists to be anti-russia and against putin in a way that is that doesn't align with, with our own interests. And so um, I do want to be careful here. And the vested interests are actually rather interesting. So you've got one thing that we do know, of course, is that Joe uh, Biden's son, Hunter, was on the board of Burisma, right, the Ukrainian oil and gas firm. That's the same company that Joe Biden on video bragged about, you know, removing a prosecutor that was investigating them for corruption and that kind of thing. I mean, so we've got these different ties to Ukraine, actually, uh, amongst the elitist class, for want of a better phrase. Um, then there's the Clinton administration, the links that they have with Ukraine. So from 2009 up to 2013, the Clinton Foundation received at least $8.6 million, apparently, from the Viktor Pinchuk Foundation, which is headquartered in Kiev, that is, you know, the Ukrainian capital. And 2008, Viktor Pinchuk, who made a fortune in the pipe building business, pledged a five-year, $29 million commitment to the Clinton Global Initiative. That's a program that works to train future Ukrainian leaders to, as they put it, modernize Ukraine. Um, I'm seeing a pattern here. Then there's the fact that Nancy Pelosi's son, Paul, regularly traveled to Ukraine for his work, and he was also on the board of an, of an energy company. Um, so you put all this together and you're like, oh, so all these different people have different connections with Ukraine. And at the same time, they're all trying to defend Ukraine and, you know, condemn Putin. It's like, I don't trust their intentions. Hold on. I don't trust them a bit. And uh, with the limited amount of information that we've got, I just... I feel like there are so many people who are like, oh, I'm an expert overnight on this entire saga, and I'm just going to kind of repeat what, what the, the mainstream left and the mainstream media are saying, and I'm just not willing to play ball with that. Um, it, it, it seems like with, with Russia, at least they have like an actual man as a leader. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that on air, but it really does seem like at least they have somebody who, who is, is competent and is male and masculine. But what will happen now, and this is actually kind of disturbing, is that, you know, due to sanctions that we're putting in place, Russia will most likely strengthen its friendship with China. And that doesn't look good for us in the future. That's not a relationship that we wanted to, you know, get stronger. And I think that when Trump was in a position of power, he recognized that, that dynamic and tried to work to create a friendship there uh, with um with Putin in order to sort of prevent the friendship growing between uh, China and Russia. Um, Shivan says, I'll have you... I'll have you know I've watched four whole videos and read two entire articles about Ukraine and Russia relations. I'm an expert. Well, you are by most people's standards, because most people just read headlines. That is the way that it is. People send me headlines, and often, you know, you look at the article, and it's actually saying something completely the opposite. But nowadays, the people who are releasing these articles know that people only put out headlines. So it is definitely a thing. And, you know, it's like... I'm not one to say let's go ahead and, and risk our our people over there in another foreign war, as we've done so much with catastrophic effects. I, I, I don't. I'm not willing to just sign on with that because that's what our neo neocons think we should do 
in alignment with our left, as those two groups usually are. Um, Joseph Murphy says, the usual suspects opening their mouths, I bet they'll go over to pick up arms to defend Ukraine on the ground. The armchair perfume warriors. Right, and, and I do think that if we're going to say that, you know, we need to enter the war, I mean, you have to consider what that really means. Like, we're, we're saying that it's, it's a cause worth fighting, sure, and, and a cause that is worth fighting to the degree that we're willing to send our men over there to risk their lives in the pursuit of this. And that's not something that I think should be thrown around so wantonly, uh, as so many people on Twitter and so on wish to do. Um... Random Zealot says, no one has clearly outlined our national interests in this yet. Exactly. And that's not something that I can do for you either. Um, but I'm not the one telling us we should go ahead and rush into a war. And to be honest with you, talking foreign relations and war is not something I actually like to do. I, I do cover news a lot on this show. Um, but my main interest in it is to talk about our culture. That's what matters to me um, as an individual. So... Talking, you know, I, I have to talk about war in the context that people expect me to talk about the news, and I do try to stay as informed as I possibly can. Um, but for me, what matters is what's happening right here at home in our culture. Um, and that's why I like, cited the different things about Russia that I actually kind of like and that the left absolutely hates, like the way they deal with the LGBT problem and the fact that they're actually Christian as a nation and, and, and that's, that kind of stuff. And it's like over here, you look around and you see society is kind of crumbling in a lot of areas. And that, that ought to be the focus of our attention, uh, given the, the condition that we're currently in, right? Um, Politics is downstream from culture, said someone. Well, yes, yes. And, and religion is what, um, what, what creates the culture. There's a quote from John Newhouse about that. Anyway, moving on, though. Uh, oh, I, I wanted to show you an article that I, I came across recently. This is a totally different topic. We're moving on from Ukraine um, already. So, because uh, I, I, I have lots of topics I want to get to tonight. So there's this, um, there's a, a hospital in Wisconsin, uh, a Froda hospital, that uh, is refusing to let patients, COVID patients, see their loved ones. And I wanted to show you this story that I came across. It was earlier today. And there you can see it says, husband sick with COVID-19, wife hopes to bless him with holy water. Uh, he tested positive for COVID-19 in December. All right, so the, the story actually is that she wants to go in and see her husband, and yes, she wants to sprinkle holy water on him, but she also wants to see him, and he's sick, extremely sick, and the hospital won't allow it. That's Carol Wood, by the way. Her husband is Ron Wood. Ron first tested positive for COVID, if you believe the tests, in December. He's been hospitalized and on a ventilator, apparently for the last 38 days, but I'm not sure. I imagine it's something more like 40 now. Um, Carol said something to this, this media outlet, and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and quote her, actually. She said, quote, It's been hard. There's days I have anxiety, and it usually comes out at night when I'm fearing I'm going to get a middle-of-the-night call that they told me he died, and I wasn't there to hold his hand and say, I love you, goodbye, unquote. Now, I think it's evil what's happening in cases like this. Look, the guy is on a ventilator. He's been there for over 30 days. His chances of full recovery from that are exceedingly low. 
Now, we can argue about whether they used the right treatment. We can argue about whether or not he should have been placed on the ventilator in the first place. I don't even know what drugs they gave him. Right now, I think it's, it, it's kind of irrelevant. The point is that a wife wants to see her husband and is being prohibited from doing so when he's, you know, in a state where he could quite easily die, and that's sick. And our society has normalized it when a couple of years ago, um, that wouldn't have been the case. He's someone who also has uh, multiple sclerosis, apparently, so he's got a complicated health history, uh, which explains why he might have had a really bad, you know, uh, bout with this. Uh, perhaps again, I don't know all of what they did uh, to to quote unquote treat him. But in any case, the point remains that this is evil. And there was a time not so long ago, just a few years ago, when people would have been like, "Well, why won't you let a wife in to see her husband?" It would have been considered outrageous because it is. It is outrageous and sick, and yet it's happening. And uh, further down in this article. It said, and I quote, Fodert Hospital granted WISN-12 exclusive access inside its intensive care unit earlier this month, unquote. So what I read there is they let the press in, but not the wife of the dying husband. And for me, that tells me everything about this hospital, the people involved, and perhaps even the state of our culture that that could be considered acceptable. Like, can you imagine? Seriously, like, can you imagine being someone who works there as, you know, a doctor or a nurse or what have you, and you're there and you're being told, you know what, this patient is somehow so contagious with this flu that's everywhere and people are getting it constantly, but anyway, so contagious after 38 days on a ventilator that he can't see his wife, right? And yet, and yet at the same time, camera crews are coming, so we're going to go ahead and let them in because, you know, priorities like, you know, profit. I, I just can't even imagine being that person. And it was during the, um, the early days of COVID's appearance that I read this uh, article in The Guardian about this uh, toddler who had died. But because of COVID, they wouldn't let the mother and father like, uh, carry the casket. And it's stuff like that that just kind of affected me. Like, I still remember it. This was like two years ago. And I still remember reading that article because it affected me, just the inhumanity of it. Like, like the fact that somebody would actually stand there and tell this, these grieving parents, no, you can't say goodbye to your, to your little son like this. You can't, you know, hold his hand one last time. You can't carry the casket. You can't get the closure that you ought to get because instead we're going to follow some government edict because that matters more to us. Or in this case, somehow it's worse because there is no government edict because they just let the press in. Right? So it's not about that. It's about them coming up with arbitrary rules and torturing people. And I say torturing people because that's what you're doing when you say to a, a wife of who knows how many years, you can't come and say goodbye to your husband who you know and we know is dying. It's, so I had to spare a minute because ever since I read this article earlier this afternoon, it's been kind of on my mind 
the like just the the unbelievable inhumanity of it and how normalized we've become to that degree of dehumanization to which people just look at this this couple and say you know what it's fine just just keep them apart it's fine it's, it's policy there's a government policy and so there's a hospital policy somewhere that says this is okay therefore i'm going to engage in it it's like no there's a point in time in which you as an individual are responsible for you and your own actions when this is sick you know and oh gosh hold on i um i've actually spoken to a few people in real life who during the early days uh, of covid had that problem of not being able to get into the hospital and having to come to um complex methods to try and, and do so, including going in there with a lawyer and that kind of thing, or going up there like 10, 10 people from the family all at once saying, you know, try to stop us kind of thing. I've spoken to several people in real life who've relayed these stories to me, and it's like, then you've got something like this, and you've just got an older woman who doesn't really have those kind of resources, and so she's being left and sort of abandoned by the system in a sense and by the system i actually mean the sort of the greater society because in a decent society this wouldn't have been allowed to happen it just it just wouldn't you know keeping them away for like going on 40 days probably 40 days by now um it's just evil yes in wisconsin yes um okay all right anyway uh i am gonna move on even though that's like still on my mind because it just it really affected me when i read that earlier because i thought i thought that was over actually I, I didn't realize that still now two years later we're still denying people the right to say goodbye to their loved ones i know that was like an evil thing that was happening in the beginning uh, for like the first six months or so now when everybody knows that it's not the black death i didn't think we were still doing it anywhere um and apparently we are so i'm i'm rehashing what i thought was what i thought and hoped was uh what was dead and buried as, as a policy Okay, so moving on though, there is a proposed law in Canada that would penalize the intent to commit online hate speech. So this is fascinating. It's <laughs> perhaps less, less fascinating if you're Canadian and just more like horrifying. But in any case, it's the proposed legislation is Bill C-36. It says that if a Canadian citizen fears on reasonable grounds that another person will commit hate speech online, or an offense motivated by bias, prejudice, or hate based on race, national or ethnic origin, language, color, religion, and it goes on and on and on, they may lay the information before a Canadian court. And that Canadian court can then go about and take away your internet access or strip you of your ability to drink alcohol and various other bizarre things. Now again, this is not about you actually having committed a crime. And by crime, we're actually referring to hate speech um, as a crime. Okay, so this is so bizarre. So not only are we not talking about hate speech as a term, which is like so wrong in itself, because like there is no, there shouldn't be no illegal speech that's just offensive, right? But instead, we're talking now about a situation where we're, we're looking at pre-crimes, right? Very minority report, exactly. Hate thoughts. So, you sit next to a person in a bar and you come to the conclusion that he might, at some point, say something online that would be hateful and that that hateful speech would be criminal 
by Canadian law. And therefore, you report him to a court and say he hasn't said it yet. He didn't say it to me. He hasn't said it on the internet. But I got some like vague idea because I was reading between the lines, you know, as he was drinking his beer. And I'm pretty sure he's a hateful guy. I'm pretty sure he would say something like that. And I'm pretty sure he might commit it. And therefore, you know, you guys need to do something about him. And this bill would actually then have the Canadian court step in and make an assessment themselves and decide what they're going to do about that person who might commit a future a future hate speech crime. Um, I mean, that, that's crazy. Uh, Harry says thoughts and words aren't crimes. They shouldn't be. And certainly a law of that nature is a law that, that would justly be ignored. Um, but in Canada, it's sort of getting that way. Now, the bill actually defines hate speech, in fact, because I was just going to get to the point of the fact that hate speech isn't really a thing. Uh, not really, not to those of us who actually believe in the concept of free speech. And what's interesting is everyone says they believe in free speech. If you notice that, have you ever brought up free speech with somebody and they'll say, like, I don't believe in free speech? Nobody will, because it's such a pillar upon which our society has been built that everyone considers it something worth defending. So everyone has internalized the fact that, yes, of course, I, being righteous, you know, believe in, in free speech. Then comes the but. Right. So I, like in like college settings especially, you'll have like, well, yes, I believe in, in free speech, but not hate speech. Right. So, okay. So you don't. And so that's why you have to kind of come back at them and explain to that person like what free speech really is, um, because they, they really have gotten to this like brainwashed stance in which they just can't really articulate this anymore. They can't e even think clearly. But anyway, getting to this bill again, the bill defines online hate speech as quote a discriminatory practice to communicate or cause to be communicated hate speech by means of the internet or other means of telecommunication in a context in which the hate speech is likely to foment detestation or vilification of an individual or group of individuals on the basis of a prohibited ground of discrimination, unquote. And that was a mouthful. But it was also very, very circular. Hate speech is, is hate speech that's sent through the internet that's meant to be hateful towards protected members, you know, on, on the basis of a prohibited grounds of discrimination. And of course, that means that it doesn't matter if you, whatever you say against white people. Because if you look at the prohibited grounds of discrimination, right, um, it, you end up starting to get, get into like academia speak, where they're like, well, racist, not so much. It's not really racism if it's against white people because white people have power. They're redefining racism. And I think they've also redefined it again recently in order to try and be as exclusionary as possible towards white people being victims, especially during an era in which they're locking out white people of certain uh, career choices and university applications and grant money and that kind of thing, right? So it'd be very easy to, to lob around racist if that was you know something you wanted to do uh, in regards to various different policies, like I covered over in Asheville, North Carolina, maybe a year ago, that they were enacting a reparation system in which people who were not white were given preference in like affordable housing and that kind of thing. So yeah, but that's somehow not racist because we've redefined it and all of that. So uh, when it comes to this Canadian law, it does seem very vast, because it is. Uh, 
and I do think we're sort of like following the 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 path that has been paved by England and its treatment and approach in regards to this kind of thing because you know England tends to pave the way toward bad ideas um, but when you look at the way that they sort of started out with um, I think the first law was against inciting racial hatred I believe that was like circa 2006-ish uh, that they put that into place and then that kind of uh, suddenly encompassed all speech that was against a certain religion of course that was meant to protect you know Islam from any detractors of it and they just kind of like flung it under the same law so you get charged with inciting racial hatred when you were criticizing islam enough so that was kind of insane and now they've reached the point where they're like well you can't offend people um which is i mean yeah that, that was the road it's like well if, if a person could and, and then now they're at if a person could reasonably be offended by what you said and so then at that point, you're kind of, you're pretty far deep into the area of thought crimes then, right? Because you're inferring what somebody else might think in response to what you said, which is on the basis of what you also were thinking, you know? It's, it's not actually what you said anymore. It's, it's the interpretation of what was meant by the person typing it and what would be received by the person, you know, who reads it. And that's the sort of direction that you go. And at that point, you're like, well, can I say anything of substance? It's like, no. Because if you're not hated by somebody, then you probably haven't said anything of relevance. Um, and that's something that I had to accept when I was pretty young. I thought we all did, but apparently not. Just so you know, I do not have enough space on this table. It was not designed to be my little... You're, you're balanced on books right now because I needed, needed more height. I'm, I'm making it work. Anyway, um, moving on though, but we'll be better next week. Um, I do want to talk some about what's going on in in Canada, um, because I mean that's been an evolving saga of of tyranny there, right? So we just talked about the the hate speech legislation. I think that kind of um, overlaps some with the expansion of tyranny as a as a sort of a rule over in Canada, because. I mean, when you have authoritarian regimes that start to take over, first you have to take away their ability to defend themselves, and that's long since been done in Canada. Um, and then you have to go from there and take away their ability to speak freely and, and deal with them in that regard too, right? To prevent criticism of the regime. And when you're starting to talk about what the person might have been thinking about, well, that's, I mean, you can, you can interpret that any, any way you want. So uh, at the same time as all of that kind of legislation that's going on, they've been attacking protesters. Um, there was uh, Rebel News, for those who don't know, is like the one conservative-leaning outlet uh, over there in Canada. And one of their reporters, Alexa Lavoie, was just beaten up by cops and perhaps UN soldiers, because uh, I'll get to that in a second. I'm not going to show the video, um, but she did get hit three times in the head, and she was apparently shot point blank with this tear gas canister in her left leg, just above the knee. You can she ends up showing her leg at one point after being carried away, screaming. She was obviously in a lot of pain. She has like this massive welt on her leg. Uh, she was not at any point a threat to the officers. She wasn't fighting anybody. Um, the police began kettling without cause. Um, 
it was actually kind of like what happened in January 6th, actually. So is the media rewriting of what happened, uh, now that I'm thinking about it. But uh, the way that they're handling this, the way the Trudeau administration is handling this, is absolutely um, wrong. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Uh, it really is. I was worried that they were going to go in this direction, and, and they have. Uh, let's see, someone in the chat says Ezra Levant. Yeah, that's who runs uh, Rebel News. And they don't have a lot of good media uh, sources out there in Canada, not that we do, you know. Um, but in any case, it's especially bad over there. Uh, John Cox says it's not just wrong, it's immoral. Well, that's not what I mean when I say wrong. Um, it's, it's, I'm just using it as a synonym, a synonym for immoral. Um, there are, when I mentioned the UN soldiers thing, it's kind of a bit of a theory, and I don't usually um, peddle in these theories. But the thing is, there are these multiple videos by people on the ground in Canada uh, recording these UN planes that were landing between February 19th and February 22nd. In fact, I think, I, yeah, I put together a conglomeration of these, actually. So let's, let me flip, flip over to that. Okay, and so you see these... Um, videos and it's like um i don't have an explanation for it other than you know it being what it actually is here we go go ahead and get others going you see the un on the on the plane tip there and it's like so people are kind of denying that this is happening or the official sources are let's skip forward on this one we get this woman out of the shot no offense to her uh she's doing a good job there but um you, again, you, you, I mean, why are these planes there? I, I'm happy to hear an alternative explanation, but I haven't really seen one. Yeah, I muted the videos because they weren't particularly helpful. They're just talking about how there's, there's UN planes, and I'm already telling you that. Uh, so, yeah. So something's happening with regard to that. There are a lot of people who are saying that the uh, so-called police who are on the ground and who are being especially aggressive were UN troops. I mean... I'm not going to say that's not the case. Uh, it certainly seems likely, in fact, that, that was the case. I don't have a great, ex an alternative explanation for why so many UN uh, planes were suddenly landing in there. Um, not at all. And we do know that we've had police from like Quebec and so on who were brought in to this other area and were hostile to the people there. And there's, there is kind of some like um, division there between the people of Quebec and the people of the more English-speaking parts of Canada. So that's also a kind of a, an exploited source of tension, I think. Sorry, my throat's kind of giving out tonight. Oh, and, oh, uh, I'll look at the chat for a second. Watching trains go by says the PPC party in Canada is the only way forward in Canada. All three major parties in Canada are 100% progressive globalist shills, but we literally don't care what they do anymore. No more fear. Okay, the, PP the PPC needed a better name. So it's called the People's Party of Canada, if I'm not mistaken. And it sounds like a communist party. I used to be friends with a guy who ran as a candidate for them. And he told me they got calls all the time from people asking if they were communists. And it's like, well, they're called the People's Party. I mean, it sounds like it. I'm sorry. They call themselves the Traditionalist Party or something like that. or I don't know, but not the People's Party. It sounds like, like a communist or socialist group. Uh, they needed a better name. But yes, I completely agree that the regular parties in Canada are awful. I can completely understand with your desire to align with the PPC. I do think they're the best of, of, of the options available from what I've been able to discern. So yes, all of that is true. 
Um, oh, and talking about the uh, tyrannical nature of the police in regards to these protests, I wanted to show you this um, Twitter post that they actually put out. If I can, um, if I can find it, there it is. Okay, this is actually a, you know from their verified Ottawa Police account, and it says. If you are identified in this protest, we will actively look to identify you and follow up with financial sanctions and criminal charges. And um, they just called it a protest, not a riot, which is interesting. They called it a protest, acknowledged that this was a protest, and then said that these people, anyone who's involved, not anyone who's involved and violent, but anyone who's involved, they're going to identify you and follow up with financial sanctions and criminal charges. Um, they're also talking about charging anybody who donated to the the trucker protest. And that, of course, that would be people who donated from Canada, of course, because they can't charge people in the United States as much as they'd like to. Um, this isn't normal. This is not how uh, you would expect a normal democratic society to work, to shut down um, protest movements is not something you'd expect these people to be in favor of, you know, but instead they're, they're being extremely hostile with these people who have gone there uh, rather peacefully uh, engaged in civil disobedience in order to seek a redress of grievances from their government. Uh, JP says real people's parties have never been tried yet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, they needed a better name. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I, I I like the PPC, that they were great, it's just people's party. Anyway, uh, yes, this is tyranny, uh, to, to, to answer Alan Wade. Um, when you're acknowledging that there's a protest, these people were not violent until police started hitting them with, the, with their batons. And yes, then there was some fighting, because that's what happens when you hit people with batons and start kettling them and so on. Um, they were exceedingly aggressive. We don't know how many injuries there are. We do know that there is some political uh, persecution. Let me go ahead and switch scenes. There we go. Um, at this point, we also know that trucks were seized and towed. A lot of truckers' bank accounts were frozen. Uh, at least some, perhaps most, have been unfrozen at this point, but not all of them. We also know that the Ontario Ministry of Transportation has effectively shut down 39 trucking businesses in the wake of a crackdown on the so-called um, freedom convoy protesters. They shut down 39 businesses, trucker businesses, right? At a time when they have shortages and everything because these people dared to contest, dared to you know, protest their government for a change of policy and did so in a non-violent manner. The the Emergencies Act was lifted, but some of the threats from it are now permanent, such as, and most especially, the government's ability to freeze the bank accounts of their political opponents, their political opposition. This is not something that we should have happen. This is one of the, the big things that I've been talking about for, so, for, for years now, and it's one of my greatest concerns is that uh, you have governments and to some degree, corporations also now um, working together to try to use the financial sector to act as a sort of bludgeon with which to beat people who are political opponents. That's what happens when you talk about cancelling that um, involves the financial sector. That's one of the sort of primary problems with it um, that ought to disturb us all. Um, 
let's see, there was a donation from Julian, I hope it's, it's Borges, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, because you absolutely need more exposure, Sarah, familiar with Savannah Hernandez, I messaged her to check you out, and you should do the same for her, would be a great blessing to have you on Rapid Fire Cast. You should be everywhere, Timcast, Blaze TV, Infowars, etc. Well, thank you so much uh, for your support and for your thinking that I should be bigger. Now that I have moved and will soon, you know, be in a better set than this, um, I think it will be possible for me to do more interviews. My internet speed is significantly better, so that had kind of interfered with my ability to do um, interviews and that kind of thing, which really drove me crazy. And so I'm, I have I have grand plans. And we'll see about bringing them to fruition. But thank you for your donation and, f and for your support as well. Seriously, I appreciate it. Um, going back to Canada after I drink. Hold on. Um, the police involved, including the uh, police chief in Ottawa, have vowed to prosecute anyone involved in the convoy. Again, including those who donated. They're going to prosecute anyone involved in the convoy. This was an act of civil disobedience. They simply drove trucks to a certain place and stopped. That's it. Um, okay, the spider says freedom convoy is a trap like January 6th. Um, no. It's simply the fact that you have a tyrannical government that's going to respond whenever people fight back against their acts of tyranny. The, the, the solution to that is not simply laying down and never having a protest ever. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, yes, when pushed, a tyrannical government may sometimes become more tyrannical. That doesn't mean that your efforts to fight for freedom are, are, are bad, are in vain, or are a trap. Is simply the, the consequence of fighting against a totalitarian power, and more power to the people who have the courage to to participate in that. Um, that's what I would say. Um, John Cox says Canadian government has lost its mind. Well, that's kind of what happens um, when when they get too much power. And this is a guy, you know, Trudeau, who I wouldn't say he's lost his mind, but certainly. He is power hungry, and he doesn't see the humanity in the people who are protesting because he sees himself as better and elitist in response to it. Um, yeah, okay, I can't respond to that particular follow-up question, uh, Spider, because it's not something I can say on air. Um, uh, Jonathan Lewis says, it's like when the government joined forces with Google to spy on everyone's email, as Edward Snowden showed. Uh, yeah, that happens. Then you have uh, stuff like the Bank of America that joined forces with the United States government um, after January 6th in order to find the people who got hotels on January 6th uh, and who used Bank of America. And this wasn't like we have a warrant to say this person committed this violent act, but rather... Uh, these people simply got hotels, and therefore the Bank of America decided to go ahead and volunteer that information to the government so they could track people whose only crime was participating in what was, in fact, a mostly peaceful protest. Again, like a million people showed up on January 6th. Um, so uh, most of those people were entirely nonviolent and were there to protest um, against the government and uh, and election problems that were being ignored. I'll just put it like that. Um, 
Uh, Pav the Slav says Trudeau and Putin have a lot in common. Well, Trudeau's the one who declared martial law on his people because they were um, protesting him. You know, I mean, seriously. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and move on. I'm going to quit just reading your comments for a second. Oh, actually, I did want to show you, though, the, the there was a Freedom Convoy leader and organizer, organizer rather, uh, Tamara Lich, who was arrested. I think I have a picture of her. I do. Um, there she is. Who was arrested and then charged. She was denied, denied bail by an Ottawa judge. Uh, she faces up to 10 years in prison for her involvement in this, this protest, which is insane. Um, again, they're denying bail to her. The Ontario Court Justice, a, a woman named Julie Bourgeois, I believe, uh, denied bail for her, telling her, and I quote, your detention is necessary for the protection and safety of the public, unquote. Um, how was she a danger to the protection and safety of the public, pray tell. Um, see, watching trains go by says, arrested for mischief, 10 years. Exactly. Y yes, they want to re-educate her. She's a danger to an, to an established regime that is acting in a tyrannical way. She's a danger because she's an organizer. That's not what we're supposed to be talking about in the West, in civilized nations, when we're talking about a danger. It's not just a, a person who's capable of organizing and inspiring people. That's not what we consider to be so dangerous that they need to be locked away, you know, and re-educated and so on. That's not the way it's supposed to be at all. And we should all be seriously concerned about the direction that things are going. Uh... Top Secret Bear says, trial already. No, there's not a trial so far. She was denied bail, so she has to stay in jail awaiting trial when, in fact, when she should have been released. I mean, it's a mischief charge, you know. But they don't want her out because she might actually help to organize a protest against the government, and that government does not want to be questioned. That's what's going on. And again, this was a protest that was, it was extremely nonviolent considering the number of people who were there until the point at which um, they started attacking people. I mean, just literally a tight, and there are lots of videos of that happening. Um, John Cox says, you're right, Sarah, she's a danger because she's a leader and she's not afraid to take a stand and lead others. Exactly. Um, and so for that reason, she's a threat to an established authoritarian regime. Um, Sharon Patriot says, I'm seriously concerned, Sarah, I have grandchildren. Um, yeah, yeah, I can, I completely understand that. And I, I do, I don't want to talk here as if there's like no hope i don't think that's ever the case i don't there are reasons why i speak so much about building community and why it matters so much to me i think it's i think it's the only way forward i think it's the only way to protect yourself and the people that you care about um by getting involved forming groups forming friendships in the real world not on the internet uh you know you, you can't form a community across zoom sorry you can't you know get involved with your local churches do whatever you have to do um get involved in local elections which are elections that matter you know elections of things like sheriffs and stuff like that that can actually change the outcome 
of how your community is capable of responding to a tyrannical government and what they're willing to do and that kind of thing. And that's, that is the future. If you want to build a future that protects your kids and your grandchildren, um, that's what we should be focusing a lot of our energy. At the same time, recognize that we also have to build it by building back up the culture and recognizing what's missing from it and recognizing the fact that we are descending culturally as we sort of reject uh, the faith in public life. And as we do that, as we move toward secularism, we automatically move toward the deification of government in favor of God. And in so doing, we sort of like produce our own our own demise, as has happened throughout Europe, as we look over them, as I look over at places like England, that once, you know, were pillars of civilization and now um, are so incredibly lacking in so many ways and are just so fallen um so that's what that's what i would i would urge don't give up hope just kind of start fighting um okay oh we should go ahead and show the canadian parliament woman i think lighten the mood a bit in here don't you think so there's this woman in canadian in the canadian parliament who got trolled by 4chan 4chan is, is has come up with so many uh, great ways to sort of mock the the modern culture. Like they came up with the whole "it's okay to be white" thing, where people started putting that around just to kind of see uh, what the response would be. And they knew what the response would be from these colleges, especially when colleges were like, "We don't have a problem against white people. We just, you know, want to fix what, what was wrong and that kind of thing." And so, unfortunately, they started putting out this it's okay to be white signs, and suddenly there was like an uproar and that kind of thing. There have been so many different memes that have been generated from it. I mean, it, it's been fun. And most recently, of course, they came up with the whole uh, correlation between um, honk honk and Heil Hitler, uh, which has resulted in some people, every time they hear these trucks honking out there in Canada, they think that they're Nazis who are honking their horns to say Heil Hitler. Uh, I kid you not. Let's see if I can go ahead and pull this video up. My program's been acting a bit weird tonight, but let's see if we can, we can do this. I, like many Canadians, were shocked to see Nazi flags, Confederate flags, dismayed and angry and hurt. Okay, okay, let me just stop. There was at most one Nazi flag in the entire thing, and you know it was somebody just trolling. You know, uh, <laughs> or somebody paid, you know, <laughs> to actually do that. Uh, but anyway, we'll continue, because she was just so hurt, so hurt. Horribly hurt. So, Sorry, can, can I just say, you know, that like, if I saw a communist flag inside of a leftist thing, like, and I went on and I was like, I'm so hurt. You know, I'd have equal reason, and it would seem ludicrous. I'd have equal reason in the sense that there are millions of deaths that are attributed to communism that can be, you know, that can be attributed to communism, that were caused by communism. And yet, if I were to say, I'm so hurt, people would think that I was being ridiculous, because I would be. And she does it, and there are people who take her seriously. She takes herself seriously when she's like, I saw a Nazi flag and I was so hurt, and a Confederate one too? Like, you don't say. How many Nazi flags does it take? Apparently, one. How many donors from the Capitol riots? It's 1,100 and counting. <laughs> Sorry, there's 1,100 donations. She is appalled. Who have donated to these illegal blockades. How many guns need to be seized? <laughs> How much vitriol 
do we have to see of honk honk, which is an acronym for Hail Hitler? <laughs> I'm sorry. See, you see what I mean? Like, she's really taking this seriously. And it's this, like, really melodramatic speech. Like, she's practicing this thing in the mirror. You know, I'm going to have to do, like, an equivalent. You know, I'm going to have to, like, watch, just, like, some far leftist White Lives Matter, you know, riot that's going on and just be like, I was so hurt. Did, did you see that flag? Just how many donations do we have to have from, like, Kamala Harris supporters before we do something about this? Do you know how many? Have you seen the GoFundMe donations? They're just, like, they're growing and growing and I'm so hurt and I don't know how to handle this. Yeah, we'll continue. <laughs> do we need to see by these protesters on social media? Okay, okay, um, we will start, but seriously, they take themselves so seriously, and you know she practiced that stuff. Seriously, she, she must have. I mean, I didn't, I, I just, I'm that way inherently, you know, hurt, just, just, just hurt. Um, but she, she's for real, and you know, at first I, I saw this clip going around, and I was thinking that it was one of these things where you have, like, somebody who has a YouTube channel, and they go and they, they kind of green screen themselves in, into a scene, and they, they kind of make this thing up or whatever, or, or just some random stranger shows up at a meeting and makes it look that way. But no, that was real. Uh, that woman actually exists and she takes herself that seriously and she wants you to as well to think that you know we're here fighting on the edge against nazism and so on and it's like you have to join the cause against these people because otherwise hate wins um so i'm having way too much fun with this but seriously there are people who think like this it's not my fault that they think like this that's just you know it, it is the way that it is um one guy in the chat says, sorry, I can't trust anyone with glasses like that. See, that's what they said in Cambodia, actually. Um, sorry, that was that was a twisted joke. Anyway, moving on. Hopefully nobody got that. Um, uh, Harry says, what do you want to, what do you want them to call it? Power to the proletariats of Canada. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, Let's move on. I actually wanted to show you something. Let's see, did I actually? Yeah, I did actually uh, get some stuff for this. Okay. So coming back to the United States now, uh, I just realized how close we are to the, to the hour. So I'm moving on. Um, coming back to the United States, the, um, the private school network is where a lot of people send their kids because they don't want to send them to public school. And they're like, that we recognize that there are massive moral and obviously religious uh, problems with the public school systems. We know what they're teaching about gender and so on. We know what they're teaching regarding race. And for that reason, we don't want to send our kids to public school. More power to you. A lot of people then decide they're going to send their kids to private school. And what we've actually seen, though, and what has come to light just recently, um, is that the private schools... A lot of them, about 1,900, are part are connected with the National Association of Independent Schools. That's the NAIS. Um, that's this membership organization that they're all part of, and it has, amongst other things, a queer inclusive curriculum that's been released by this group of moms called calling themselves the Underground Moms, and they're spread throughout the United States, and they're looking at what their kids are actually learning, and they're going out and getting the information and presenting it to the public and saying, hey, this is actually what your kids are being taught. So yeah, they've got this queer inclusive curriculum, and there's been details released about this from Breitbart, but even in like pre-K, they start asking these kids whether they feel like they're boys or whether they feel like they're girls after they've taught them about basic anatomy. Like, I mean, 
pre-kindergarten, we're talking like really young children. And then in by the fifth grade, that's kids who are 10, 11 years old, um, they take it even further. They're basically uh, indoctrinating these kids throughout their entire lives to accept certain things that simply are not true. Um, here we go. I've got it. So here we've got the fifth grade at the gender unicorn with gender identity and gender expression, um, attraction and so on. And it's like, this is for your 10, 11 year old kid who's at a pretty crucial age, right? In regards to the kid probably just about starting puberty or will be soon. Um, and is probably very confused, especially about things like attraction and, and we're, we're confusing them further intentionally. And that is twisted. It is wrong. It is evil to take a child and to say to that child, um, who knows what you really are? And to encourage them to sort of like deny themselves. That's what you're doing, right? I mean, we're all sort of, we're all made who we are. We're all, we all have value and dignity before God. You know, these are, these are tenets that we all ought to accept. Um, especially those who call themselves to be Christians, because you know, each individual is made in the image and likeness of God and all of that. Um, and so then at some point you're saying to this person, well, you know, actually, maybe you were made wrong. Because maybe actually you're not a guy, but you're actually a woman, and you were made entirely wrong. And so let's, let me join you in your identity crisis and deny you as well. And then say that's a moral thing for me to do in order to deny you. Because that's the, mo the modern moral orthodoxy says that if, if a guy proclaims to be a, a woman, I have to indulge him by saying, yes, you are correct. Of course you're a woman. And in so doing, deny the intrinsic value of that individual, you know, and, and lie alongside him. And again, that's still a him. Uh, lie alongside him and say, yes, you actually don't have value inherently. You're all messed up. You're completely wrong. You know, who knows where you have value? You just kind of, there's this massive screw up in the universe. And somehow that's supposed to be elevating. It's not elevating. We actually have statistics that show that it's not elevating. We can show the, the, the suicide rates after they, they start, you know, going through self-mutilation that we approve of societally somehow um, are exceptionally high. And yet, um, yeah, that's that's considered to be moral. It's not moral. It, it's it's evil and it's cowardly, and that's what it's all about. It's about disguising what is cowardly as what is moral, and that's what we see happening in modern society. You know, everyone's like, well, it's just it's moral to just to just tell tell them what they want to hear. No, it's rarely is that the case that it's the moral thing to do to just say what people want to hear. Nope, that's not life. Sorry, I wish it were. Believe me, um, but it's not. Um, Sharon says, I've never seen such a lost generation in all my life. Well, yeah, it's like, we're taking these kids at pre-K ages and telling them, are you sure you're really that? I don't know what I would have been. I was, I was a tomboy. I used to like run around with my five brothers, you know, and I, uh, I, I ran around like a boy. People said, you're a tomboy. That made sense to me. You know, I was just, I just like to climb trees. But what if somebody had come along and said, well, actually, no, maybe, maybe you're actually a boy. Maybe we should start giving you hormones because you're kind of messed up. And, you know, the dangers of it, it's, it's so unbelievably twisted to take a child and confuse them at such an age like that. 
Um, okay. Um, oh, I do want to talk about something else. Let's see. I know I said I was going to start capping it at the hour, but I have more things that I want to talk about. So, yeah, I have, like, okay, lots more things I want to talk about. All right. Um, but at the very least, I'm covering this next one because it's, yeah. Um, so the, the Supreme Court has, the U.S. Supreme Court, sorry, has agreed to take on the case of 303 Creative versus Ellenis. It's the, it's a fascinating case. It's, there's a website designer named Lori Smith, and she's being forced by Colorado, it seems like it's always Colorado, to create websites for gay marriages. Um... This is, uh, there's obviously a ton of overlap between what happened in the uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop case, right, with Jack Phillips, where they repeatedly, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission is coming, has come after him and said, you know what, you have to make the, the cake for the gay wedding. Well, now in this case of uh, Laurie Smith, it's, well, you have to create the website um, for, for, these, for these gay weddings also. And she's like, that's a violation of my faith. I can't do that. And because of the overlap between um, between these cases, and also because of the the fight between um, I guess homosexuality and homosexual marriage, which I shouldn't really pair together those two words um, with religious freedom, uh, the she's getting a ton of bad press. The entire media is is trying to slam her, and it's it's sick. Uh, it was uh, Reuters that's, that ran the title, quote, U.S. Supreme Court takes up clash between religion and LGBT rights, unquote. Now, that's kind of a, a messed up title. You know why? Because constitutionally speaking, religious freedom is protected. You know what's not? LGBT rights, whatever the heck they are. I mean, it's it's that easy. There There is no, the, 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 you know... That was back at the time in America's history where sodomy was banned. Never mind gay marriage. That just didn't, that wasn't a thing. So don't tell me about LGBT rights being defended in the Constitution. Sorry, they're not there. Um, you know, and, and again, I'm not sure exactly what they, they mean by LGBT rights. It's such this like non phrase. But in any case, um, religious freedom is, def- is protected and spelled out. So there should be no case at this point. And frankly, the Jack Phillips case went, right, to the Supreme Court. And he won, but it was a narrow victory in the sense of the way that they phrased the the victory. They were trying to to be so careful, and they shouldn't have been. They should have actually given a broad answer that would have required some real courage. Um, Turtle says they recently changed the 1964 Civil Rights Act to make LGBTQ a protected class. Right, and we should get rid of the Civil Rights Act in any case, um, which I, I've been over before, and I'll probably go over it again in a minute because I need to spell that out almost every time that I say it because people just kind of don't understand. But um, so not only is the Colorado Civil Rights Commission trying to force this woman to uh, produce these websites for gay marriages, but they also want to prevent her from explaining. Um, her case on her company's website. They don't, won't let her say that she is a Christian who believes in, in traditional marriage, for example. You could also just say real marriage or marriage as defined for the last 2,000 years or, or whatever. But in any case, she's not supposed to say any of that or explain her actual beliefs. And, you know, for me, it goes both ways. Like, 
if I wouldn't want to go to a, a gay person who runs a cake shop and then force them to to, to celebrate my my com, my forced conversion therapy cake. I, I have no interest in forcing a business owner to conform with my own beliefs. I don't. If they're not you know in conformity there, I'm perfectly okay with finding somebody who is. In fact, I'd like to know so that I can fund the person who is. I mean, that's just the way that I am. But in, in any case, um, this case is kind of broad in that regard, that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission is so aggressive in the way they're going after Christians. And um, over at Slate, there's a guy there, uh, you know, obviously a leftist because it's Slate, a guy named Mark Joseph Stern, who engages... Uh, engaged in the fear mongering. And there's this slippery slope that if the Supreme Court of the United States, you know, stopped the government from compelling speech, then soon, and I quote, a racist photographer could refuse to shoot an interracial wedding, or a hairdresser could refuse to serve black people. Unquote. Like, yeah. Or a black owned business could put a blacks only sign on the door. It could happen. It could. I mean, in, in modern society, it's very unlikely that you'd have a white business owner who would have like a blacks only policy. It's much more likely that you'd have it in the other direction. Let's, I mean, just seriously, it is much more likely to have it in the opposite direction. And as somebody who would be on the receiving end in that particular case, I'm more than happy to find some other business. Um, and that's why I was saying earlier that I think the Civil Rights Act should actually be revoked because personally, if there's somebody like of a different race who runs a business who doesn't want to deal with me because of either my race or my politics or frankly anything else, I'm more than happy to search for a different business who doesn't loathe me on the basis of my religion or my race or anything else. More than happy. I'd like to know. I'd like to give money to the person who I consider to be decent or who at least considers me to be decent. That's the way that I see it. I don't need to be forced to give money to the person who secretly hates me. I, I don't even get the logic. I mean, I, I realized there was a point in time, and, and I understand that, where you know it, it was so very common and it was considered to be to be necessary. Uh, I don't really think it was, but in any case, let's look at where we are now and analyze that, because otherwise we're just looking back in history and there's not a lot of point to that on this show. Look at where we are now and say, does it actually make a lot of sense to have the Civil Rights Act and to force a person who runs a business to deal with a person with whom he does not wish to deal, and in so doing, to protect the person who would be the patron by forcing him to give his money to somebody who hates him? To me, that doesn't make any sense. Um, none whatsoever. Um, Krista Esperval says, the seller also should not be able to not contradict his values. Sorry, I'm not sure I understand what you mean. Uh, Random Zealot says, I want to give my money to the businesses who want my business. Exactly. I'm the same way. I mean, and, and for me, that's not like a racial thing. It's like, unless they hate me for being white, in which case, sure. Um, but I, I, I want to... Like, uh, this is kind of like the vote with your dollars thing. It's like, if a person loathes me for one reason or another, I don't even care what. Um, why on earth would I want to give them my money? No, I'll go elsewhere. Thank you. So, um, and I don't, I don't play the games where it's like racism is only one way. I mean, seriously, if you, I, 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 I went once to, um, to Martin Luther King um, Boulevard 
in in a city here in North Carolina. I won't, I won't say which, but I went because there was this one like place that sold um, frozen fish that was from an ocean as opposed to farm raised, and I was hunting for it. And me and the people that w- what we were with were like the only white people like in this entire street in the entire area, and certainly in the store. And the just like looks that we got that were like, "Are you lost?" were just unbelievable. I mean, it was just like really, really apparent. It's like what we just wanted to fish. Yeah. Anyway, there was a story that didn't need to be repeated. But anyway, um, let's see. It's it's eleven oh eight. Okay. One more. I'm going to give you one more news item, and then I am going to quit. Okay. Uh, in the meantime, I'm, I'm, I figure you should, you ought to use this time to tell me if there's any topic that you wish me to cover. Like if you have any questions. Um, go ahead and type them out, and I will try to get to them as soon as I'm done with this one. That way, I don't have to sit here and wait for you to type, and you don't have to sit here and watch me just stare at you. Okay? Um, such is the logic in any case. Yeah, one more. <laughs> okay. All right, good. You're on board. So, on June 5th, 2020, in Minnesota, you had the Black Lives Matter riots, right? They were breaking out, and they were pretty intense. You just asked Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah, hundreds of people took to the streets, they were looting local businesses, they were vandalizing private property, they were setting fires, they were engaging in arson. One of those violent individuals was a man named Montez Terriel Lee Jr. I'll go ahead and show you his picture since I got that lined up, actually. So there he is, that's Montez, doesn't he look like a nice guy? Alright, now that night, Montez, according to you know, court records, broke into a pawn shop, poured fire accelerant around, and set the place on fire. The actions were caught on video. Then according to court records, one of the videos captures him standing in front of the burning shop, saying and exclaiming, I'm just going to clean this up for language because I try to keep this family funny as much as I can. He goes, F this place, we're going to burn this blank to the ground. He screams that after setting the place on fire. Now, over two months later, after Lee burned down the shop, a 30-year-old man named Oscar Lee Stewart was found dead amongst the remains, amongst the debris. Now, he killed that man, it is, it is said, and he did so with like wanton disregard for life, as you do any time you engage in arson, right? But because of his motivations, the U.S. Attorney's Office said that he should get a lesser sentence than is normal. In other words, because the U.S. Attorney's Office approves of this man's politics, he should get less time in prison. I kid you not. The U.S. Attorney's Office statement literally says, quote, Mr. Lee's motive for setting the fire is a foremost issue. Unquote. Like, no, no, actually it's not because, because a man died. And to me, and most likely to that man's family, that's kind of the, fourth, the foremost issue, actually, I would say. That's the primary issue. But the statement goes on by the U.S. Attorney's Office to say, quote, Mr. Lee credibly states that he was in the streets to protest unlawful police violence against black men, and there is no basis to bl- disbelieve this statement, unquote. So again... It's the same kind of statement where what we're saying is because they believe that this was a righteous cause because it agrees with their politics, um, then then he shouldn't get charged with um, actually killing this man through, you know, 
reckless endangerment or manslaughter or what have you. It's like, no, a man died due to his criminal behavior, right? It wasn't just an accident that, you know, he fell into uh, and killed a person by mistake. He engaged in a criminal act, a felony, that is arson, and in so doing, he killed somebody. Anybody else would have received apparently about more than 200 months um, in, in prison. The judge in this case granted a much lighter 120-term um, imprisonment on the basis of the recommendation by the U.S. Attorney's Office because of his motivations that were so pure. And the January 6th prisoners, the political prisoners, are not getting any such mercy, of course. Remember, again, this man killed somebody. They didn't. On January 6th, the only people that were killed were Trump supporters, and they were killed by law enforcement of various stripes. And by the way, lots of different charges against Black Lives Matter and Antifa rioters were dropped as soon as Biden took office because there were federal charges as a result of the fact that people in, say, like Portland and that kind of thing weren't willing to uh, press charges. And so you had the Trump administration sent in the National Guard, federal charges were brought. Then the Biden administration came in, tons of different charges were simply dropped despite people acting in like felonious, er felonious ways. It's, it's absolutely audacious, and everyone should be horrified by this. I mean, seriously, like an innocent man lost his life. Um, family members presumably lost a loved one. Uh, we shouldn't trivialize that. Um, it's not something that I want to politicize. It's been politicized by the fact that the attorney's office said that that guy's, that guy's life didn't matter as much because it was killed in because it was killed in the pursuit of what they considered to be a just cause. And I find that entire thing just disgusting on so many levels. Okay, let me go ahead and scroll through what comments you left whilst I was going over that, and we will see if I can, you know, get get anywhere on any of these questions. But it looks like you're not doing the at Sarah Correa thing, which is going to make this really fun. Thanks, guys. Yes, sarcasm is my thing, by the way. It's, I think it's the British in me, but that, I'm just using that as an excuse. Um... I'm not sure why you're referencing the Ukraine war. I've already talked about Ukraine uh, and also the fact that I don't like to talk foreign relations, and yet I did um, for you guys. So there is that. Okay, let me skip to the bottom. Here we go. Um, John Cox says, It is disgusting, Sarah. It's a shame and very sad. Right, and yet you're going to hear about the name of George Floyd, right? And everybody knows who George Floyd is. Um, does anybody know who Oscar Lee Stewart was? Because every time they say, they say George Floyd, as if it's like some mantra by itself can you say well oscar lee stewart and they understand can you say ashley babbitt i mean because ashley babbitt they've, they've redefined as like some kind of terrorist now but you should you should be able to you know hear about these people who were killed by black lives matter rioters and know who they were to the same degree that you know about a guy who was um ODing, um at the same time as dealing with police and then died in the course of that like there's something seriously wrong with society when that isn't the case. When we know George Floyd's name and we don't know this man's name, and it's not a household name because he wasn't worth rioting for. In fact, he was killed in the course of riots. Um, I find that seriously disturbing. Um, okay, I don't see um, a lot of a lot of questions for me tonight, which I presume means that I did a good job, even that I'm just inferring it that way because, you know, who wouldn't? <laughs> okay, seriously though, um, 
it's been it's been fun so thank you and somebody said bring back the curtains and i'm just going to tell you they're never coming back in a week we just move forward 50 years it's like an impossibility um next week we should have a better setup in any case but it's going to be a gradual process because you know it's been the busiest week of my life probably and also probably the most expensive so i'm doing what i can as like gradually as possible and and so on so there's a lot going on back here um appreciate your patience with it all all right thank you guys it has been a wonderful night as always i'm glad that we got through it together thank you so much have a good night okay bye bye if you're enjoying this podcast please consider helping to support it you can give a one-time donation or buy a branded mug at thecrusadergal.com or you can donate monthly by searching for my name, Sarah Correa, at Subscribestar. Thank you so much. I couldn't do this without your support. And whether you can help financially or not, don't forget to tell your friends. Big Tech isn't going to help me spread the word. Thank you.